Um, as I was thinking about this passage this, uh, today, I was thinking about something that um, I think really embodies the message of this passage. And many of you will remember this from back in 2006. And uh, this is the sort of thing that has actually become rather commonplace for us these days. Um, and it's the whole thing about school shootings and this sort of stuff that we hear so often these days. Am I sounding? I feel like I'm echoing really bad. Is it just me hearing this? Okay. It's a bad spot, I guess. Um, is, uh, this is becoming very common. We hear this a whole lot, that school shootings or other types of shootings are taking place in our country. Well, back in 2006, in a place called um, Nickel Mine, Pennsylvania, uh, in Amish country, you might remember that uh, a single-room Amish schoolhouse uh, had a lone gunman come in by the name of uh, Charles Roberts, and he came in and he killed. Uh, he shot 10 children, and uh, five of those children, five young girls were killed in that accident, or not in that accident, in that shooting. And then Charles killed himself. And at the time that that came out, that was still something that was not as common as it is today. And so it was very shocking. But when I say that to you tonight, that's probably not something that, I mean, you still find it atrocious, you feel, still find it horrible, but it's not something that blows you away like it once did. But what does blow us away, even today, because it is so uncommon, is the response of the Amish in that situation. I just want to read to you a couple of quotes of individuals who were uh, responding to that situation. It says, um, on the day of the shooting, a grandfather of one of the girls who was killed was heard warning uh, not to hate the killer, saying we must not think evil of the man. Another Amish man noted he had a mother and a wife and a soul, and now he stands before a just God. Jack Meyer, a member of the Brethren community living near the Amish in Lancaster County, explained, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those uh, who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. So actually to not only help those who suffered their children dying, but actually to help the family of the killer. It's not something we hear often these days. A Roberts, the, this is the family of the killer, a Roberts family spokesman said an Amish neighbor comforted the Roberts family hours after the shooting and extended forgiveness to them. Amish community members visited and comforted Robert's widow, parents, and parents-in-law. And listen to this. One Amish man held Robert's sobbing father in his arms, reportedly for as long as an hour to comfort him. The Amish have set up a charitable fund for the family of the shooter. About 30 members of the Amish community attended Robert's funeral, and Marie Roberts, the widow of the killer, was one of the few outsiders invited to the funeral of one of the victims. I mean, that's tremendous, isn't it? That's sort of a response to such an evil as this. And it really raises a big question in our minds that this passage in 1 John is interacting with. And that is, this is the question I want to pose to you tonight. When someone looks at you, looks into your life, do they see a love that can only be explained by the presence of God in your life? I'm going to ask that one more time, and we're going to think about this throughout the course of this sermon. When someone looks at your life, do they see a love, a love for other people that can only be explained by the presence of God in your life? This is exactly what John is concerned with in this passage. 
not because we need to be moralistic, loving people, but because love is the outgrowth of God's love for us in our lives. And it is, in John's mind, a proof of your salvation. John is supremely concerned in the book of 1 John that you be assured that you are in the faith. What he says in 1 John 5.13 is this. This is him summing up the whole book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so throughout the book of 1 John, he is going to prove to people or show people how they can know that they have eternal life. There's going to be three ways in which he does this. He's going to pose a doctrinal test. And you can come away with this test by asking yourself, what do I believe? He poses a moral test by which you can ask, how am I living my life? Am I obeying the commandments of Christ? And then he lastly poses a social test. And this is the one we're going to look at tonight. How do I love? Pose the question again. When someone looks at your life, or when you look at your life, do you see in yourself a love that can only be explained by the presence of God in your life? Are you a loving person? And so as we come to our passage, there's going to be three ways in which John answers this question of why this is such a crucial indicator. And he's going to lay a foundation that God is love, that God displays love, and that we display God. So that's what we're going to move through for the rest of the sermon. We're going to understand this, the basis of this, that God is love, that God displays love, and that we then, after this, display God. So how does he come away with this notion that God is love? Look at our passage. Two times he says this, 1 John 4, verse 8. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what does John mean when he says that God is love? What is he trying to uh, get us to understand? Well, I think in order to understand this, it's helpful for us to think about some theological categories that can help us frame this in. There's two ways that you can think about the attributes of God. I want you to hang with me here. We're going to wade into some of the deep end stuff here for a minute, okay? And then uh, we're going to flesh this out as how it applies to our life. You can think of God's attributes in terms of his contingent, or you might say dependent, okay? Contingent attributes and his fundamental attributes. So what do I mean by contingent attributes and fundamental attributes? God has some attributes which are contingent or dependent upon him creating in order for him to express those attributes. So how can that be? What what am I saying? I'll give you an example. God is gracious, right? Okay, His graciousness could never be explained or expressed until he created another being for him to be gracious to. So we cannot say that God has eternally been gracious. Graciousness required him to create before he could ever display grace to people. You could say the same thing about justice. His justice his righteousness would have to be violated before he could ever express justice. These things, these types of attributes are contingent upon God creating for him to manifest them. And then we come to this other category, this fundamental attributes of God. And we think of things like the Trinity, the nature of his Trinity, that he is three in one. This is fundamental to who he is. There has never been a time when he is not Trinity. He has always been three in one. His holiness. He has always been holy with or without creation. He has always been spirit. He has always been light with or without creation. These are essential to who he is. 
So why do I even begin to ask you these categories? Because when we're talking about love, I wonder where do we think love fits in to God's nature? Is it contingent upon him creating beings that he can show love towards? Or is it fundamental to who he is? Is it his very essence, his very nature that love be there? Well, at first blush, you might want to say, well, it's contingent upon him creating, right? Because love is something that is displayed to other beings. We have to love another person in order for there to be love in action. Well, that would make a lot of sense, except this. John does not say that God is loving, does he? He doesn't say that God has love, even though these things are true. He makes a very, very strong claim that God does not have love, that not, not that he is loving, but that he is love. He is love. He is it. So in John's mind, God is in his essence, in who he is. He is love. So how could that possibly be so? If eternity passed before anything was ever created, how could God be love before there was ever anything for him to show love towards? Well, I think C.S. Lewis can give us some help here. Hear what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, God is love, he's responding to this passage, has no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. God is triune, right? So for eternity past, love was something in existence within himself. Let's continue on. He says, love is something that one person has for another person. If God as a single person then before the world was made, he was not love. Christians believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing. That is a, a, a steel thing. He is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity. A life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And I want you to hang on to that term, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and Son is a real person, is in fact the third person of the three persons who are God. So what is C.S. Lewis saying by this? Okay, Here's how I think about this. When I was in elementary school, I used to have a gym teacher by the name of Mr. Rogers. Uh, I think that was his name, actually. I might be mistaken. I'm not sure if that was his name or not. But um, I remember watching Mr. Rogers as a kid. But uh, anyway, this gym teacher, you know, you're in elementary school and you want to go play, play basketball, that sort of thing in the middle of your day to get out of school. So you go and you're looking forward to playing basketball, playing tug of war or whatever it is. And we would go sometimes and one of the things, one of the activities he'd have us do is he'd have us do square dancing of all things to do square dancing. And of course, we hated square dancing. And the whole time he'd play you know, what we thought was cheesy music on a, on a cassette player, and we would do si and promenade and learn all these things, okay? I think when we're thinking of God and what C.S. Lewis is trying to get across to us is a square dance in heaven. I mean that. God and Jesus are square dancing, all right? This is going to play out in the rest of what we talk about later. They are do si and promenading through heaven. 
And the dance itself, the square dance itself, what C.S. Lewis is saying, is another person. I know that blows minds to even think that way. The square dance, the dance of God with God the Father with God the Son, is the Holy Spirit. The love that flows between the Father and that flows back from the from the Son to the Father is that love uh, circle is the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Jonathan Edwards said when he said the Holy Spirit is the delight that the Father and the Son have in each other. And he carries in himself so fully all the essence of the Father and the Son that he himself stands forth as a third person in his own right. I'll give you another way of thinking about this, and this is the way Jonathan Edwards envisions this also. If you track down the road here and you go take a right down towards Mill Creek, you're going to come into what is one of the hallmarks of McDowell County life. It is so pristine and beautiful. It is called Andrew's Geyser. And... Uh, Fountains spring up from the earth naturally. No, not naturally. And they bubble up and then they crash back down into itself and it continues to do this. Jonathan Edwards envisions the life within the Godhead is like this fountain. So the, the Father springs forth a fountain and it showers back down as the Son responds back to the, to the Father. And this is, this fountain is the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to imagine this fountain, okay? Imagine this is magical water, just for the sake of our argument, okay? And every time this splash, this fountain, showers back down inside of itself, imagine that that water multiplies. It continues to multiply and multiply. What's going to happen to that fountain? It's going to overflow, right? Jonathan Edwards said that when God decided to create... It was not that he needed us, that he needed another being to make him fulfilled. He was completely fulfilled within himself. That fountain flowed beautifully. There was love perfect between the Godhead. But because that love was so full and so it multiplied every time it flowed, that he could not help but overflow. And when he overflowed, he said, let there be light. And he said, let there be creation, and he created Whenever the Godhead was dancing the square dance in heaven, what happens when you square dance? You get another partner, right? That's what was happening throughout creation, throughout eternity, is that God was dancing, and then there came a time when he said, I have got to share this love that is flowing between me and the Son with something else. And so he created just so that something else could experience this dynamic love that he had, and so he created Adam and Eve. And then when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when they decided to disobey, they fell out of this love fountain. They fell out of it. They were no longer experiencing it. Instead of love flowing into Adam and Eve and then love flowing back out of Adam and Eve to God and then into one another, they decided to turn that love in on themselves and completely collapse in on themselves in selfishness. But because God is self-giving, because love by its nature is self-giving, God decided That he, or he didn't decide, he could not even help himself because he is love. He couldn't even help himself, so he, he erupted forward, this fountain coming back down, and he overflowed again. And what John, John shows us how God loved us in this way. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God 
sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, or you might say the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Look at 1 John four thirteen through 14. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. You see, when God overflowed this last time, when he desired to dance again, he did so in the most selfless way and that's what love is. It is utterly selfless. He gave his son and did the most loving act in history. He crucified his son on our behalf so that... This spirit of love that flowed between the Father and the Son might then be poured out inside of you. That's what he did. He overflowed into the crucifixion, killing his Son, and then when we place faith in him, he overflows into us, his spirit, this very presence of the love of God within you so that you can be a part of this dance in heaven. Not only now, it begins now, but for eternity. Engaged not as one who is outside of God, who is coming to him as a spectator, but one who is inside God himself. Inside this experience of love and joy that takes place, has taken place for eternity, and will take place for eternity future. That's what salvation is all about. That's what it means that God is love. And that is how he displays his love to us. So how then does this even begin to apply to us in terms of you should love one another. And that this is a test for your salvation. Well, I want to look at C.S. Lewis one more time before we dive into 1 John and we finish out with this. Listen to what he says. And now, what does it all matter? Asking the same question I'm here asking. It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us, or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern, or we'll say that square dance or that fountain. Take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things as well as bad things you know are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of entry and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. So the question that faces us here is then, if we are able to experience this and draw near to God in this way, how then do we get close to God? How then do we even begin to experience this? And John answers that in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God, think about this. Have you ever thought about this? God abides or lives in him, and he lives in God. How else can we understand this except for this cyclone, this spinning, this fountain, this dance of love that God is entering us into? 
when we confess the Son and we believe in His atoning sacrifice on our behalf and we receive the love that He has poured out on our behalf, then we enter into this. And there are enormous consequences for us when we draw near to that fountain, when you draw near to Andrew's geyser, even as piddly as Andrew's geyser is. You get close to it. If you sit on the bank of that, on that barrier that wraps around Andrew's geyser, you get sprayed with water. If you get close to God, if you, Christian, have drawn near to God by faith, he will shower down on top of you. And the consequence of that is that you can, not that you should love, but that love is a chain reaction that comes out of you. You cannot help but love other people. It is natural for Christians to do this, to love one another. That this love that God has poured out in you through his spirit be something that you want to share, not only in terms of evangelism, but just in terms of giving yourself, your time, your energy, whatever, to one another, not only in the body of Christ, but to even to those who are outside the body of Christ, like we saw with the Amish. That's the point of this passage. And so he commands us. He says, beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God, cannot love God with whom he has, whom he has not seen. And then perhaps even more pointed, verse 1 of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If we are not loving one another in our life, then we are indicating by that action that we do not know God, nor do we love God, nor have we ever entered into the love of God. This is the test that John is putting forth to us. Are you one of these loving people? I said that the reason why we have this uh, test in our life is because God is love and he displays love. And then I said we display God. What I mean is that by this love that I am referring to, you're not, re- you're not merely pointing people to an attribute of God that he is loving. You're actually the image, the picture of him to all the world. Listen to what he says in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You hear what John is saying there? He says, no one has seen God. But if you love one another, his love's perfected in you. In essence, what he is saying is that when you love one another in the way which can only be uh, known by the fact that the presence of God is in you, when you love in such a way that it can only be explained by the fact that God lives in you, People look at you. You look at the Amish and you say, that's God. I remember the quote at the end of Les Miserables. If any of you have ever read that or seen that, the priest says, to love another person is to see the face of God. That's 1 John verse four, chapter 4, verse 12. When we love others, we display most beautifully, better than any sort of apologetic argument or any sort of rationalization can ever do. We prove to people that there is a God and that he is love and that he is for them and not against them. We display the most beautiful fundamental attribute of him. I'm going to tell you a time in our recent life when we have experienced this at this church in a very beautiful way. 
a very positive way. Um, as you saw in the bulletin here uh, this past Sunday, Danielle and I, for those of you who may not have known, uh, have been fostering the little girl that, if everybody's going to turn around now, uh, the little girl that Danielle's bouncing in the back. Her name is Leah. And we've now had her for four months. She's six months old. And um, we, uh, on July the 8th, uh, this past summer, um, it was a, a day just like any other day, you know. I remember a lot of little things about this day. Uh, I remember the staff got together and we ate at Mellow Mushroom up the mountain. And we sat outside and Josh Hayes had a bird poop on his pizza. <laughs> and uh, it was a really good day. And, uh, <laughs> um, and so we came down the mountain and, you know, you just do your stuff here. And I got home at 5 o'clock. Or a little before, maybe. I'm not sure. And we got a phone call. And uh, it was uh, social services asking us if we wanted a little girl. Uh, a little uh, two-month-old girl who had, as they said, severe uh, health issues. And so we said, what are severe health issues? And they informed us that she had been malnourished. And um, we uh, said, well, we need to think about it and pray about it. So we thought about it for a few minutes. I stood at the front door and, and hit my head against the wall for a little while. That's not a joke. <laughs> and then we couldn't come away with anything in the five or six minutes we were talking. And I said, well, why don't we pray about it? And so I just prayed and I said, God, I don't know what I'm expecting you to tell me in you know, the next five minutes, but we need to know something. And honestly, at the end of that, we um, had such a peace of, and such a direction that that this is what we needed to do. So we called them up and we said, we're in, we, we want her. And they said, okay, uh, come and get her. <laughs> and so by the time that we got the phone call at five o'clock and we pulled into our house with Leah, it was 6.30. So we had 90 minutes, you know, from that time. And we had nothing. We had a, a crib, a couple of little things that we'd gotten from, that we just kind of saved over the years. But we had nothing. No uh, clothes, no diapers, no uh, wipes, no bibs, nothing. And so I called Robin, and um, I said, Robin, or I texted her, and I said, we're getting a baby. Can you put it on Facebook that we need some stuff for babies? And uh, she says, I'm on it. And, uh, and so she's doing her thing, and we're doing our thing, and I get a call from Robin uh, a little later. Or somehow we get told that um, she got in touch with Sarah Syak who runs our Common Ground Women's Ministry here. And um, she said uh, what was going on. And Sarah said, all right, let me get back in touch with you. So Sarah calls all our moms. Some of you experienced this. Some of you were part of this. And, uh, and gets back in touch with Robin and says, if you can take uh, PG, I can take Marion. And they circle around all the houses in Marion and PG. And all these moms are like throwing clothes at them <laughs> and stuff like that. So when I said we pulled into the house at 630 we pulled into the house at 6.30. Sarah Syak was already at our house unloading the first load of stuff for Leah. Um, by the time I had actually that night turned, as soon as we got home, I had to go to Montreat and preach and then come back down. Um, by the time I got home at 9 o'clock, I couldn't even begin to describe to you the outpouring of material things for Leah that we had and people at the house and people wanting to hold her and this sort of outpouring of love. 
This is pres- and when, when I looked at that, I mean, I could not help but just cry within myself because of the experience of that, just having that poured out onto us. You look at that, and I, you cannot help but say, God is absolutely in that from the beginning to end, and he is so pleased with every little component of it that just makes him smile. That's what God calls us to, love one another in that selfless sort of way. And so I ask you again, are you the type of person, when you look at yourself or others look at you, that they say they love in such a way that it cannot be explained except for the presence of God? If I were to ask your spouse that, do you love your family in such a way that can only be explained by the presence of God in your life? Are you patient when you're wronged? Are you uh, not boastful when you're right? Are you uh, slow to anger and quick to listen? Are you um, a servant to others and self-giving? If I were to go to your job and ask your coworkers or your employees or your boss, is such and such a type of person that you can see the presence of God in their life by how they love you and how they respond to difficult situations here, what would they say about you? Would they say, God's not the first thing that comes to mind when I think of that? Or would they say, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, yeah, absolutely. I see God in them. Yeah, sometimes they get it wrong, but yeah, overall, they love. Overall, they care. Overall, when things aren't going, bad, things aren't going well, I can see the fingerprints of God in their life. Uh, a closing illustration for this that Josh and I were talking about today So I'm just going to use Josh. If you go to Josh's house, pull up to the front door, he was telling me about this as a really awesome way of thinking about this. Got a black door, and he's got a screen uh, glass storm door there at the front. And if you walk up to it, you can see a bunch of little fingerprints all over the place. Because a little Ryan, a little Scott, (laughs) and little nose prints and stuff like that, you know. It's the same way with you. When someone looks at your life and there's that black door of whatever's going on in the background, those tough situations, a rough marriage, a rough job, bad situations with your finances or a troubled kid at school or whatever it is that makes you want to boil forth in, in anger and bitterness and those sort of qualities that are not becoming of a Christian. Can someone look at you and say, yeah, it's tough for them and maybe they get some things wrong, but I can see the fingerprints of God all along that front door of their life. They're loving. Yeah, God is in them. The love that God has for them has been poured out, out of them. Like he, They're just really a channel of his love to other people. John is concerned with this for us because if we, if we examine our lives and we come away with, a, with this and we think, you know what, I'm, I'm really not loving, then he wants warning signs to go up. He wants us to question and look back and say, if you're not loving, if you do not love your brother who you see, how in the world could you ever love God who you've not seen? If you're not loving, you need to ask yourself, have I ever loved God? And has God ever brought me into that love that he has within himself? Should I expect to spend eternity in that love relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
Last little note here from 1 John, and here we end. The point of this, as I said, is that uh, by this we know, as verse 13 says, that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit, verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Listen to this. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What's John saying here at the end? He's saying that if you love one another in this sort of way, look at the end of verse 17. Then you can say, because as he is, as God is, as Christ is, so also are we in the world. If you can look at yourself and others can look at you and say, as God is, as Christ is, so are they in the world then the response to that, that assurance that John is concerned that you come away with, it overflows in your life. Because he says, when that happens to you, you can have confidence. Yeah, Christ is in me. Christ is working things out. Christ is teaching me. Christ is helping me to, from the spirit that lives within me, love one another. And so as a response to all of that, there is no fear, no fear in judgment. Because you will know that you are his. Because as First Peter says, the divine nature of God is being manifest in your life. That's the point of salvation, that you become like Christ. And how much more could we ever be like Christ than when we love one another? So who is it that you need to love? In what way do you need to love them? Who do you need to invite to your home for Thanksgiving? Who do you need to ask for forgiveness from? Who do you need to uh, think a little bit more carefully whenever you blow off the handle at them? What do you need to do in response to this? How can we better love one another? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your great love for us, which is beyond what we could ever fathom, Lord. We just touched the surface of it tonight. Lord, we pray, Father, that you'll help us where we struggle with loving each other. Sometimes it's easy to love the lovable. Sometimes it's difficult to love those who are not quite as lovable, Lord. But you call us to love everyone. You help us to do this, to love our enemies, to love our neighbors, to love those who are families. Pray as we go to communion, Lord, you prepare our hearts for this as well, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.